Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Many nations have set ambitious goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and address climate change. President Joe Biden wants to reach zero emissions in the electricity sector by 2035 and the full economy by 2050. A big part of achieving that goal will likely happen by reducing fossil fuels and increasing production of renewable energy. As we talked about in our last episode, the Orkney Islands have done this. The Scottish archipelago went from importing fossil fuel energy to exporting its own wind and tidal energy. Orkney is also experimenting with storing that extra green energy so the excess can be used when they're unable to produce, like when the wind stops blowing. And that's one of the challenges to using renewables like solar and wind to generate power. They fluctuate. They're unreliable. At times, there can be too much, and then at others, not enough. Some studies show that nations can get to about 80% zero carbon through clean energy relatively effectively with existing technologies. But to go that extra mile to get to 100% clean energy, you basically need more and better types of storage. Emery Guke is Director of Energy Storage Research in the Office of Electricity at the U.S. Department of Energy. That's an absolute requirement as we phase out fossil fuel generation and bring in renewable energy. But how to store it? People kind of go, oh yeah, solar, I'll have storage. The solar will work during the day and then I'll have a battery which will carry me through the night and then the next day the sun will come up again and everything is great. This is energy consultant Stephen Brick. He's had a 40-year career in the energy industry. He's worked in government and the private sector. He's also worked with the Clean Air Task Force, an environmental group that advocates for greenhouse gas emissions limits. The problem is much more significant than a day-to-day problem. It becomes a seasonal problem. 100% solar energy won't get you through a Canadian winter, and wind works fine, except if you hit the summer doldrums. There are short-term solutions to keep the lights on for a few hours or days, but experts are still searching for the ideal way to store energy for longer periods of time. But Guke at DOE says the world will have to figure it out. You cannot have decarbonization without a full development of long-duration energy storage. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the show, part two of our special series on a zero-carbon future, the transition to a decarbonized world. We explore some of the developing technologies that will help us to store clean energy we make so it doesn't go to waste. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. 
Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. My colleague Sarah McFarland is the Wall Street Journal senior energy correspondent based in London. She's been reporting on renewable energy and energy storage for some time. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Janet. What happens when there is no place to store energy? Well, if you're just relying on fossil fuels, you can dial up or down a power station's output according to the electricity demand. But when it comes to wind and solar, you're at the mercy of what the weather is doing. You know, sometimes this means that you actually have too much electricity, which can result in shutting off some of the supply, a gas power plant or a wind farm. And sometimes it means you have a shortage of electricity because it hasn't been sunny or there's been very little wind. We did see in September that the winds famously stopped blowing in parts of the UK and it really caused a lot of trouble. Yes, right. So it did happen in the UK recently that there was a drop in wind and that that meant gas and coal power plants had to provide more electricity. And if power generated at times of abundance had been able to have been stored, this could have helped plug that gap between supply and demand rather than having to rely on fossil fuels. What are some of the most common ways we have to store green energy at the moment? Well, there's hydropower. It's been around since the 1800s and it's where you generate electricity by moving water. So energy is created by having water reservoirs at different heights. And when there's plenty of power available, water is pumped up to the higher or elevated reservoir and then it's released down to the lower reservoir when there's a need for power. That water going downhill will generate the power. Not sure that would work where I live in New York City. What are some of the problems associated with pumped hydro? Why aren't we seeing this solution being used more frequently? Actually, until recently, hydro was the largest source of renewable energy in the US. Last year, according to the Energy Information Administration, hydroelectricity made up over 7% of US electricity generation. But there aren't a lot of new projects coming online. And that's because there are several issues with hydro. One of them is the fact that it's location-specific. I mean, to start with, you need a water source. And then secondly, you often need to dam up a water source, which obviously has huge environmental implications. It can also have an impact on local communities who use that water source and to the natural habitat. Plus, you're dependent on the water being available, which is a problem if there's ever a drought. And this actually happened in, in China this year when they had a little rainfall. And that meant that their hydroelectricity generation was much lower than expected. So there are a lot of reasons why there's not a lot of new hydro projects coming through globally. Another one of the most popular energy storage methods, one that comes to mind quickly, is, of course, the battery. 
Yes, one of the most popular batteries for this kind of storage is the lithium-ion battery, which is really the battery that is used in all of the products around us that we see in our iPads, in our phones. It's the lithium-ion batteries. Okay, but those are small devices. I'm wondering, can we use lithium-ion batteries to store green energy on the grid? Yes, Tesla and some other companies are using these batteries to store renewable energy on the grid. Some of the places this is being done include Australia, where a large battery has been paired up with a wind farm. There are projects in South Korea, China. Analyst Dan Shreve with Wood Mackenzie told me that lithium-ion batteries used in electric vehicles have really enabled the expanded use of this battery, especially for shorter-term grid energy storage. There's a number of applications where lithium-ion technology makes sense already. And what we're seeing is applications that are, generally speaking, two to four hour type of applications. So a lot of that has to do with um, pairing up storage assets with solar facilities. So these hybrid applications are really catching a lot of interest within the marketplace. And we're expecting substantial increases in adoption for that and use application in the near future. But Shreve there mentions two to four hours, and batteries are really best for shorter-term storage. Even the biggest battery in the world doesn't solve the issue that lithium-ion batteries can't store energy for long periods because they lose their charge. Lithium-ion batteries weren't really designed for backing up the grid, and they do have a few drawbacks. One of those is that they age. You'll know this from your own mobile phone. When you first bought it, it probably held its charge for a decent amount of time. But the longer you own it, the shorter those intervals between needing to plug it in and recharge it. And the same applies to batteries being used on the grid. They will weaken over time. There's also concern over the fact that a battery contains quite toxic liquids that are also flammable. You might have seen stories about electric vehicles catching on fire. That's essentially the battery overheating or short-circuiting. Then there's sustainability concerns. Batteries require mining. Mining has a negative impact on the environment. There's lots of focus as a result of that on recycling batteries to try and minimise the amount of resources that have to be mined out of the ground. And then also batteries aren't necessarily suited to backing up the grid for long periods of time. They're suited to providing backup for minutes and hours. And that doesn't necessarily meet the requirement that some say we need of months. So if there are all these challenges with lithium-ion batteries, what does that mean for the future? There's a real effort to try and find some alternatives to the lithium-ion battery. And some of the more promising technologies out there today include the sodium sulfur battery. This is appealing because it's essentially made from salt, um, a really abundant, easy to find material when you compare it to some of the things needed for a lithium ion battery like cobalt, which is really just found in a couple of places in the world. Another technology that is getting a lot of attention is the flow battery. Flow batteries are more stable than lithium ion, they have longer lifespans, and the liquids inside them are less flammable. Batteries and hydropower are popular, but they're not the only ways to store energy. There's a lot of experimentation being done to use renewable sources to harness clean energy. We'll talk more about those after this break.
This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. So, we've talked about hydroelectric storage and we've talked about batteries. They both have pluses and they also have drawbacks, especially if you're looking for long-term storage. Sarah, let's talk about some of the experimental ideas that you've been digging into. A few companies are trying out storage facilities that use a very basic ingredient, one that you wouldn't expect to be able to solve an energy storage problem. It's as simple as it can be. That is, it's air. Wait, air? It's ubiquitous and inexpensive. One of the companies with a track record of using air to store energy is Highview Power. It's focused on medium to long-term duration energy storage and it's based in London. The company is working on a 50 megawatt storage site which would support the UK electricity grid and it could power 30,000 homes for around 16 hours. We talked to Highview's chairman, Colin Roy, about the company. What we do is we take electrically powered refrigeration and compression technology with uh, any kind of surplus energy from the renewable generation sources and we compress the air to a level where it becomes a liquid. Sarah, I'm trying to imagine how this works and what it looks like. Hivia uses very low temperatures to cool air until it becomes a liquid and then stores it in large tanks, which look like silos, the height of about a 10-storey building. And when the company wishes to release power to the grid, at peak periods when lots of electricity is being used and there's not enough being generated, Roy explains that the company brings up the temperature so that the liquefied air turns back into gas and then the taps are turned and the air's released. It blasts out at an explosive rate, drives a large turbine like you'd get in any coal or gas power station. That's connected to a generator and it reproduces power. Simple as that. So he says it's simple. Sarah, how viable is this air option? I mean, how much energy are we talking about? And are there any concerns that this isn't really a viable solution to storage? Let's compare it to one of the world's largest lithium-ion batteries, which is next to a wind farm in South Australia. Tesla says that that 100-megawatt battery can power 30,000 homes for one hour. So Highview's project, which is smaller than the battery, can power the same number of homes for 16 hours. So that's 16 times as long. Obviously, this still isn't enabling a lot of power to be stored from one season to the next, but it is a step in the right direction. It's also more expensive than some other options being experimented with. Okay, so air is one experimental method, but you also found out people are working with another resource. Um, can we even call it a resource? It's, it's definitely natural. Uh, gravity? I mean, it's a force that we don't really think about, but it can be very powerful. Very simply, gravity storage usually involves some sort of method of dropping something heavy to generate power. 
How many companies are trying this out? A few. There's a company in the US doing a project. There's also a company in Switzerland. And when you think about it, it, it's like the evolution of hydropower. But instead of using water, the energy is generated by weights falling. So one company that's already had a demonstration plant up and running using this technique is Edinburgh-based Gravitricity. Charlie Blair is the managing director and has spent many years working in renewable energy. Very simply, we raise a heavy weight using electric motors to store energy as potential gravitational potential energy. And we can lower that weight back down again, the motors then running as, as generators, and we can get nearly all of that energy back. And what we're doing is time shifting electricity so that we can store it and have it available later on when, when we need that power. So Sarah, where would you build something like this and where would it be most useful? Ideally, the company would create facilities where there are already existing mine shafts, although it's not absolutely necessary. They can also dig a new shaft, and Gravitricity says its infrastructure can last for at least a decade, maybe more, which is longer than other storage methods. It is locational to some extent, in that today they are looking at places where there are abandoned mine shafts, such as Europe, South Africa, Australia, and they're also looking for sites that are near towns, factories or renewable energy projects. How big are the storage systems that Gravitricity expects to employ? They're small scale, like 10 megawatt projects that can power 13,000 homes for about two hours. But the idea is that they can be made larger in future. Still, you know, we're thinking villages, small towns. This isn't a solution that could support a city's power storage needs, but it could certainly support a small community. Is this already something the company is rolling out on a large scale? So they had a demonstration project up and running, but they don't have any active facilities at the moment. So it is still very much in the early stages. That is the case for most of the storage technologies being looked at today, that they're not being used on a commercial scale. They're really just test sites, demonstration projects, all relatively small scale. It's actually really difficult to find something that has reached a commercial scale, other than obviously hydroelectricity, which has been around for donkey's years. The industry is still experimenting with various storage options, but experts say it's going to take more than startup mentality to move the needle on clean energy storage. We'll talk more about that after a break. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today.
Sarah, we've talked about some of the private companies finding novel ways to get into the energy storage business. But what about governments? Are we seeing an uptick in research and development? When we talked to Imri Gyuk at the U.S. Department of Energy, he told us there is a new program in place to increase energy storage capacity. And the program's goal is to achieve a 90% reduction in energy storage costs over a 10-year period. But it's unclear as yet how much the Department of Energy will spend to fund this initiative. Yeah, I wonder how that compares to the role that government subsidies played in getting a lot of our renewable energy online. They played a big role. We likely need a similar amount of investment in storage, research and development. Government support has been so important to the development of renewables. Without it, it's unlikely that we would have ever seen a shift to wind and solar. So it's not surprising that they might also be needed to help push storage solutions along. The cost of storage could also fall on individual companies that need to ensure a stable grid. Energy consultant Stephen Brick gives an example of a data centre. The cost of energy is much less important to a data centre than the reliability of supply. And what you'll find is that they usually take a belt and suspenders approach to making sure that the data centre stays online, even if grid power is interrupted. All the while, energy demand is rising. We keep using more and more energy. And at the same time, there's this whole push to try and electrify as much of the world as possible using renewables. Things like switching cars from gas guzzlers to electric vehicles, trying to move some industrial processes to being electrified. I mean, for these reasons, experts argue the need for long-term energy storage will only grow. At the same time, governments in some countries want to curtail demand when the grid is restrained. This is based on the idea that people and companies could know the best time to use extra power, like doing a load of washing when there's plenty of electricity available. It also works the other way. So a supermarket could turn down their freezers to help address short periods of time where there's strong demand. And also there's a focus on increasing energy efficiency. Sarah, based on your reporting, I'm wondering what role you expect storage to play in getting the world to 100% renewable energy. There will most likely be a lot of new technologies with different niches. For instance, different solutions will focus on different lengths of time. Maybe batteries will never get beyond a few hours of storage, which should be charged and discharged frequently. But other technologies will mature that allow energy to be stored for much longer periods of time. In whatever happens, it looks like we'll need a mix of technologies to achieve the government's ambitions around renewable energy. Sarah, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thanks, Janet. You're welcome. Even if we do manage to fund and figure out the clean energy storage conundrum and up our production of clean energy... Experts say it won't be enough to undo the impacts the Industrial Revolution has already had on our atmosphere. There are already plans to capture the carbon dioxide the world has created in the last 150 years and take it out of the equation to get rid of it. On the next episode of The Future of Everything, we delve into the various methods underway to physically remove carbon from the atmosphere. 
The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping Carter is digital director of The Future of Everything. Thanks so much to senior energy correspondent Sarah McFarland for reporting this episode. Maddie Bender is our fact checker. Sarah Gibble-Laska is our sound designer. Caitlin Nicholas is our producer with help from Emily Schwing. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.